Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I am still sick, but getting better. I'm glad to be back with History of Sexy. Oh, me too. I do feel like everyone in the country is sick right now with the same thing. And it's yeah, awful. I assume that this is the beginning of the science fiction plague that ends us all. Like, yeah, um, presumably. Oh. I mean, it's got to. It's got to be something. I've read a lot of books recently where the science fiction plague just like wipes out fertility or does something that people don't notice for twenty years. So presumably, that's what's gonna kill us all. I mean, not a bad way to go. You know, I guess it could if be the, worse. If that's the way, like the human race has got to die out somehow eventually. And if it's Although... just like, you know what, we just we just don't have any more babies. That's much nicer than all of a sudden everyone is erupting in boils and vomiting all over each other and going into complete total organ failure in the street. You know, you say that, but I've seen Children of Men. It wasn't very great. <laughs> I have actually never neither seen nor read Children of Men. I know that the mm. movie takes some wild divergence from the book. But... It does, but to be honest, neither of them are worlds I'd want to live in. <laughs> But that's just because they approached it wrong, I think. Society in those in those versions freaked out about the fact that they couldn't have any more babies instead of just being like, oh, well, more fancy holidays in France, I guess. You know? No, you're right. Our society would definitely deal with it better. This is the thing that I always... <laughs> I can never quite latch on to emotionally stories where the point is saving the whole human race. Because why? <laughs> like, we can't last forever. It's okay if whoever is alive now are going to be the last of us but we can have perfectly nice, pleasant lives. I think that's fine. Yeah, but it'll be, you know, plagues and water wars, so... Yeah, the plagues and the water wars aren't going to be fun, but I just mean, like, if it's just that this is it and there are no more humans coming from now, then that's not a bad way to go. I guess that's probably just like, worse ways. It's the equivalent of the human race dying because no one has any more babies is the equivalent of an, an ordinary person dying of old age. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, we had a good uh, run, and and we'll go out peacefully. Uh, although I've read a lot of sci-fi where, again, people aren't very keen on just the human race in general dying. They, I know, but this is the thing. Cool I stuff like, to stop it. It's I. It's just not a motivation that ever strikes me as particularly strong whenever <laughs> I see it in fiction. <laughs> like, there's a really good Shikshin Lu short story where called The Wandering Earth, where the sun is going to go into supernova, so they build loads of like giant fan engines like all the way around the equator so that they can <laughs> drive the earth out of orbit and then out of the galaxy <laughs> and then because obviously that means that there's like massive winds because they're just driving the planet everybody has to live underground it's great i'm pretty um, sure that's going to break some of the conditions for life <laughs> I'm fairly sure it would fuck a lot of stuff up, but it's very fun as an idea. Like, there's all the stuff about people going on like school trips to go and look at the giant engines. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are we talking anyway, about this week? <laughs> we're not talking about anything to do with science fiction engines. Um, this week we are answering a question which came from Christopher on Twitter who is at Gaming Poet, and he said, the lie that people in the 15th century still believed in a flat earth is commonly told. What other oft-repeated fallacies do you come across? Um, That's a very good question. It's a great question, partly because I found out where that lie kind of came from, partly because Christopher also gave us a book to read, which was really great, which was called Lies My Teacher Told Me um, by James W. Lowen. 
which is basically a deconstruction of American history textbooks, one of which is, no word of a lie, called The Triumph of the American Nation. Of course it is. Like, it's not even... (laughs) No part of that is surprising to anyone. And that is a book that is apparently used in schools, and it basically goes through what is in these high school textbooks and how they tell history, so the ideas of, like basically American heroes and American villains and how it kind of strips all of the nuance out of American history. So that was really good. It's It makes but, you, it, it stops you really from wondering why rampant nationalism is a thing. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> it, it does, you're like, oh, okay, because they literally read a book called The Triumph of the American Nation. Yeah. <laughs> and also I kind of did some following around and found out that basically skipping a few steps but the the lie that people in the 15th century believed that the earth was flat sort of comes from the story that the spanish queen told columbus not to go off in search of the indies which then found the americas instead because they he would fall off of the edge of the earth Mm -hmm. um and that's like where it comes from and i followed that around and it turns out that comes from a washington irving book which is like a fictionalized biography of Christopher Columbus uh-huh. that he wrote after so Washington Irving wrote Rip, Rip Van Winkle he was a, just a novelist and kind of a trashy one <laughs> like like it'll be like fun adventure stories right there's not yeah it would be like if like Simon Scarrow was everything that you knew about Romans or like me if Bernard Cornwell was everything you knew about Napoleonic Wars <laughs> like a kind of trashy adventure novel is where that comes from which I found very pleasing <laughs> that is excellent I mean it goes right in line with my philosophy on history which it is as you know if you read it in a book probably it has it's true doesn't matter you... which book doesn't matter how fictional <laughs> doesn't matter if it was a science fiction novel. <laughs> See, but that's how we end up in this situation where Oliver actually made a really good list of all of the ones that he could think of. And there are a lot. But what we decided it would be fun to do is if we all three of us picked our favourite historical myth or the one that bugs us the most that we want to address. And then maybe we'll do a couple of others and then talk about probably why they could persist, basically. Like, why did we... Why is it that even though everybody knows that the flat earth thing is a lie, really, why does you end up... Where is this the second that the flat earth comes up or people talk about the dark ages and they're all of a sudden like, well, they all believed the earth was flat then too. And you're like... "Mm." No. (laughs) (laughs) It's also one of those things, I think, in that example, where how many of them gave the shape of the earth a moment's thought? (laughs) Shoot, how many, honestly, how many of us give the shape of the earth a moment's thought? I don't, really. I do sometimes, but that's only because every so often you're confronted with a flat earther somewhere. And I have this thing, I'm from New Zealand. Yeah. And what I always want to, to ask flat earthers when they pop up is, where is the edge? Because <laughs> I'm from New Zealand. And if the edge is not in Europe and it's not in America, and I'm pretty sure that no one believes that it is, then maybe I'm supposed to live on it or have lived on it. And I, ha- I can tell you, you right now the that there is no edge anywhere the fuck near New Zealand. 
So I don't know what your plan is. <laughs> See, so I was reading about flat earth people because obviously they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I found there was a Guardian article about, I'm going to really show my age here and say he's, I don't know if it's B.O.B. or just Bob. But he's a music person, and I've never heard anyone say his name. Out I loud. think, and I'm just as B-O-B. old as you, but I think it's Bob. Okay, I'm going to go with Bob because he seems to have dots in his name. Yeah. So he's apparent. He's a flat earther, and occasionally goes off on Twitter about it. And it, whenever he does, somebody asks him, "Where is the edge? Like, why have we never seen the edge?" And his response every time is, "Have you been to the edge?" The science books are just lying. Like, there is an edge. It's just the science books are lying and saying that there isn't one. So Yeah, because that sounds worth it if you're writing a science book to just lie about <laughs> it's it. It's a global conspiracy, Janina. Why would you... Of course. Obviously, a, obviously the science book people are in it. With literally no point and <laughs> that would take an incredible amount of work to perpetuate for no actual benefit. Uh, of course it's true. I mean, yeah, there, I don't really know what the benefit is, but my years of reading conspiracy theory forums tell me that nobody needs to benefit. They just, re- like, them, in, with a capital T, just really really like doing conspiracies yeah. and then putting clues about their conspiracies in all forms of media. But what else is interesting about the Flat Earth claims as well is that, I mean, and I haven't read a huge amount of them because it takes energy, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it seems bound up in the idea that NASA is lying. Not logical because NASA didn't make up the idea that the Earth was round. <laughs> um, the earliest record of it is Pythagoras. So it's a it's very very difficult to understand the beginning of this argument when when we worked out that the Earth was round literally thousands of years ago and all of a sudden NASA are lying about it just doesn't really <laughs> stack up. You obviously should know all of those ancient Greeks who were putting sticks in the ground and then measuring things were part of the New World Order and were planted right. by NASA. Yeah. Who... <laughs> Yeah, obviously, obviously, for the benefit of no one. It's fascinating. People are fascinating. It is, but flat earthers who are around today are a different breed to anything else. I think they are a confusing bunch. Yeah. So we all know that one's a lie. Yeah. So I have my favourite one, which I once nearly pushed a woman off of a ferry about. That seems a bit uh, extreme, I'm not going to lie. It was extremely reasonable. I used to, had a lot of emotions when I was younger and when I was an undergraduate, and I especially had a lot of emotions about the Emperor Caligula. Mm-hmm. I'm much calmer now as a person, <laughs> and I'm considerably calmer about Caligula. But the thing that always bothers me is the accusation that Caligula made his horse a senator and or made his horse a consul. I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun story. It is a really fun story, but it is one of these things, and I've been u- using it for years as quite a good example of how very careful wording in an original source can go very wrong mm-hmm. because basically it comes from a single line in the biography of Caligula by the biographer Suetonius who was writing about 80 years after Caligula died mm-hmm. and he basically writes a chapter about about Caligula really really liking his horse and treating his horse really well and he gives him like a marble stable which sounds awful for a horse I just feel like that would be terrible and kind of gave him loads of jewels on his I don't know horse bits and (laughs) would like have dinners within the stable so that the horse could be a guest like he was apparently very keen on the horse Mm -hmm. don't really mind about all of that fine but then it ends with he liked the horse so 
so much that it is said that if he hadn't died slash been brutally murdered, then he was planning on making his horse a senator. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, which Caligula did not have the... The emperor doesn't have the ability to do that anyway because there's a property requirement. And unless he was going to gift his horse a million Cersteis <laughs> and therefore make his horse a millionaire so he could become a senator, it just is nonsense. <laughs> It's then also one of those things that feels like it's not it's nonsense that maybe was a joke. <laughs> See, this that's like the thing that comes up a lot in fiction where when people are trying to be nice about Caligula, when they say, oh, what he probably said was like, oh, I hate the Senate. I may as well have my horse be a senator. But there's no, that's just imaginary. Like, it's just made up. <laughs> the only jokes we've got that Caligula said are things like, if only all Rome had one neck. But... Yeah, it's just like a weird gossipy thing to say about somebody like, oh, he totally looks like somebody who would make a source of senator or like he totally looks like someone who gets a bit heavy breathy around playgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a man who cries after sex, that kind of thing. Like that, it's that kind of like just a yeah. bit of a slur on his character, just baseless um, and and based on superficial and yeah, exactly. But then a few years later, like a hundred years after that, there's another history where it says like, oh, he was definitely going to make his horse a senator, and he was only stopped because they killed him. And then you kind of move on two thousand years, and then we're in the stage where everyone's like, actually, he was fucking his horse, in, which is what happens in the incredibly terrible movie Caligula starring Malcolm McDowell and Helen Mirren where there's like this weird bit where he's in bed with his horse and so like a weird bit where he's sick on the horse is super strange <laughs> but like all it and like all of the fiction that you heard like I've got my old obsession with reading about fictional Caligulas and it turns up in all of them like he makes the horse ascend he makes him a consul he makes him an emperor he makes him a god he makes him like he's having sex with the horse left right and center when really probably it was just a case of you know some people love their pets so much that they buy them Christmas <laughs> presents and call them their children and and yeah a exactly. lot of people Possibly. love really love their animals and that's fine you know what uh, he did not like the Senate very much and the Senate did not like him and they were his only friends. And then he only had only had, like, three other friends. Two of them were his sisters and it, he had to exile both of those. He had another sister, but she died. Everyone plied against him. His bestest friend was a guy called Lepidus, who was his favourite sister's husband. And then it turned out that Lepidus was having an affair with Agrippina and he had to be killed as well. Like, he, <laughs> all of his friends... <laughs> So we humans killed. either died or fucking each other or were plotting to kill him. <laughs> you know, you got to... It you, was a bad time yeah. to be an emperor. <laughs> no wonder he needed a non-judgmental, silent, loyal friend. I mean, the horse wasn't doing any of those things. No wonder he gave all of his money to the horse. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the one that always bothered me, and it will appear in every... I've got a new book about Caligula that's just come out and it's supposed to be like a nice I mean it's kind of funny to me now the idea that somebody would try to rehabilitate Caligula but people do every so often and I did once try to threaten to push somebody off of a ferry for being horrible about him so <laughs> I can't blame them too much but like it de I'm definitely going to read this in the next couple of weeks and it's going to be in there that Caligula made his author centre and I bet you now the author's thing is oh it was a joke yeah it's just because he really hated the senate I mean, I well, can understand that. I feel like most people hate most pol political... <laughs> like, and they were horrible. Like, yeah. The Senate 
were rubbish. I mean, um, you can imagine him saying, I trust my horse more than I trust you, because you would, because <laughs> you, know, you formed a relationship with your horse and it probably is trustworthy. Yeah, and again, the Senate, as it turned out, were plotting to kill him and did then kill him and his wife and daughter, so... And you know who didn't plot to kill him? His horse. <laughs> Incatatus did nothing. All Incatatus did was win medals and enjoy some nice hay. <laughs> Get down on some oats from yeah. time to time. <laughs> It's a nice, easy thing to point to of oh, the madness of the Romans and the decadence of the Romans and the, how kind of wild and crazy they were, that they were just making horses senators, <laughs> left, right and centre. Well, um, you know, given the current state of things, maybe horses would be better at it. You reckon? Just like those horses that can count and stuff, we just get them to vote on stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I trust them more than I would trust a Roman senator because Roman senators are the dirt worst. I think, uh, like, it's worth trying. We've tried a lot of things <laughs> and a lot of them have gone wrong. So, I mean, what's the worst that can happen, I suppose? War, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out the horses have really strong opinions about global borders. Yeah, I mean, or someone else would want to declare war and the horses wouldn't be very good at diplomacy in trying to make that go away. <laughs> and one country having a horse-based... as everyone else sticks with the human basis not gonna work (laughs) (laughs) i'd be the history books would be interested like g20 in the year 2021 and everyone's like well (laughs) so we've got angela merkel and we've got macron and then oh we've got a horse (laughs) i look forward to our diplomatic discussion (laughs) yeah so that's my one, that one. Like, it's a thing that I do whenever I get a new book about the Romans. I always flick and find it and see if it's in there, and it always is, and then see what they say about it, because I know whether I can trust a book about Roman, about the Roman emperors or about the Romans in any way, if that's in there. Sure. Um, and how they talk about it. It's like a bellwether of goodness or not. Yeah. I'll definitely tweet about it, because I can't help myself these days. Um. So my yeah. one that I want to talk about, I want yeah. to talk about it because it's a bit close to home for me. Yours is much more serious than mine is. Um, well, mine has a bit more potential modern day impact, I think, probably. Yeah, but it's also you're... a very sensitive subject. And I'm going to put a caveat, before I mention what it is, I'm going to put the caveat of, you know what, who actually knows? Anything is possible. Okay. But I'm going to talk about the myth that there were people in New Zealand before the arrival of Maori settlers in okay. the roughly the 13th century. So when I was going to school in the 80s and 90s in New Zealand, I was taught as fact that when okay. the original Polynesian settlers arrived, New Zealand was inhabited by people called the Moriori. And I heard this repeated again as an adult quite a lot because we were all yeah. being taught it at school when we, when we were children. And the Moriori were peaceful, they were farmers, and the Maori people were warriors. So they came in and they conquered and they enslaved and they drove them out until the only Moriori who were left were living on the Chatham Islands, which is a tiny group of islands off the east coast of New Zealand. I was taught I'm that immediately seeing some problems. <laughs> <laughs> so I was taught that as as if it was just true. Uh-huh. And in fact, that theory was discredited in the 60s. And with DNA testing and that sort of thing, the current accepted explanation is that the Moriori people were actually descended from predominantly Maori from the South Island. Uh-huh. From actually Christchurch, where I'm from, the tribe there in Naitahu have the most linguistic 
similarities between Moriori people um, and that they had just migrated out there like a couple of hundred years after the first initial Polynesian settlement and lived there for so long, so isolated that they became genetically distinct. Okay. Which is what happens if you live in an isolated yeah, place. when you live on a wee island. Yeah, for a, for, a, for a long time. So that's something, and I don't know if it's still taught, I just know it was taught when I was at school. Uh, but it's not the only theory about early New Zealand settlers. There are also stories about Celtic settlers having arrived there. There are stories that came out in the... Uh, so at some point in the 19th century, there was a fashion for stories about Ar- um, Aryan settlers all over the world, basically claiming that the master race had uh, settled everywhere before any uh, non-white people, so all land belonged to them. So, but the thing that makes it complicated is that there are some stories in Maori mythology about pale-skinned spirits in the forest, and the name for them is, because I'm not fluent in Tadeo at all, but to Pairihi, pale spirits who appear sometimes with the sound of flute music and singing, and so it's there are stories that, and, and because this is a the thing, there are a lot of stories about First Nations people sharing stories with settlers that were dismissed as myth and yeah. as fairy tale, and that were then later discovered to be grounded in reality. And so like, I don't want to dismiss the idea that that is possible. But yeah. there are there have been lots of different claims that there were settlers before Maori people in New Zealand. And a lot of the time those stories are used to try and suggest that the rights granted to the Māori people in the Treaty of Waitangi are invalid because they are not the Tangata Whenua, which is the first people of the land. Okay, so they're not really... They were, they came afterwards, therefore they don't deserve anything. Exactly. And in the case of the story about the Moriori, that they were violent settlers, so the fact that we then violently settled them is fine. Oh, and fine. It's just a natural cycle yeah. of life and it's what happens. Um <laughs> All all sorts of stuff like that. And the reason I wanted to talk about it, like it's obviously something that I I always think is important because it's been a really long, hard journey and that we're still on to try and make reparation for what happened in colonial New Zealand, which I'll I'll get into another time. Like I want to talk at some point about what we don't teach children in New Zealand about how New Zealand was settled. Because there's loads that we just don't talk about. And obviously it's gross, horrible, violent shit. But this one is particularly, I think, worrying, especially when the suggestion is that New Zealand was already settled by people with white skin. And there are there are loads of different explanations that people try to give it. I've heard that explanations that they were Mayan. It's really it's really <laughs> fucked up. It's really weird. Um, I'm really keen on the idea of Celtics. Like, there's like super Celtics people just got was... incredibly lost out of what Scotland. Yeah, like literally but... as far as it <laughs> like is nine possible people to go. From Cornwall office... got real confused. Yeah, like it's, you cannot get further from Scotland than New Zealand. And how would they? Like, I don't. <sighs> Anyway. And then like 10,000 of them just turned up and <laughs> yeah. colonised New Zealand. Um, but this is a, like the, a friend of mine recently went to New Zealand as a tourist and she heard these stories on a, like on oh, a wow. bus, a, a, a tourist bus when the guy was like, oh, isn't this a cool story about ancient mystical New Zealand? Which is fu- like, it is kind of a fun thing. Like, oh, what if, especially since half the people on tour buses in New Zealand are there because of Lord of the Rings. So they get all carried away of like, maybe Legolas used to walk around here, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) I once, I'm going to derail slightly and say I once used to work with a girl when I was younger whose dad had read her Lord of the Rings and not told her that it was fiction. Um, Her and her brother had been brought up believing that Lord of the Rings was the history of England. (laughs) 
<laughs> and as a result, they had an incredibly confused <laughs> understanding of the actual history of England. That's amazing. I know. Anyway, sorry. But it's one of those things as well that's kind of like when you when you Google the stuff, the first sites that come up are obvious conspiracy theory sites because all of the evidence that they claim that there is to support the idea of Celtic settlers or Aryan settlers hinges on the fact that the New Zealand government has been deliberately covering it up and like destroying stone buildings that supposedly were there for thousands of years and Again, there are stories supposed to benefit from that is it like that the maori are have infiltrated the government and are trying to cover up their brutal past or is it supposed to be something else yeah i don't know i don't know who, <laughs> yeah but it's there are stories of skeletons having been found uh and being kept hidden by the government and stones with strange markings but i can't like it can't find any evidence of where they are or if they've been carbon dated or whatever has gone on there. And the professor of New Zealand studies at Victoria University in Wellington uh, has come out and said not that he's never come across a theory that has passed academic scrutiny at all by any yeah. measure. So it is, it is one of those things that like, you know, we, we actually, we don't know. We don't know what happened that, that long ago. But the other thing is as well, actually, this is another reason why I think it's unlikely. And again, I'm not going to say it's, def- it's definitely <laughs> not true because I don't, I don't fucking know. But New Zealand was ecologically isolated for a really long time to the point that when the Maori settlers arrived in 12 or 1300, within 100 years or 150 years, there were species that had become extinct because that's the, like, mm-hmm. the arrival of, of humans had that big an impact on the ecology because it had been isolated. Most of the animals in New Zealand had no natural predators. That's why we've got a shitbird like the kiwi. Kiwis only survived so long because <laughs> they had no natural predators. Yeah. So when, when the arrival of one group of people has that devastating effect on the animal population, it seems unlikely to me that there wouldn't have been people there before, especially when you think about the um, makeup of New Zealand and what, what there is available for food. Like, there are birds and there are fish, and <laughs> that's what's there before, you know, settlers come over and bring bring other animals and other plants. But, yeah. So it's, it's and just... And bring rabbits and things. Yeah. And it is. It's one of those stories that, yeah, it's kind of a fun thing to peddle for tourists, but also could have and is used deliberately by some people deliberately to have an impact on the rights that were granted by the Treaty of Waitangi to the Maori people. It is as insufficient as those are, and as much as we should be questioning those, that we should be questioning them in a different direction than trying to discredit them entirely. Um, yeah. So it is... It's one of those things that... It's one of those stories that seems like, oh, fun, until you interrogate it for about two seconds, and then you realise that actually it's saying something really damaging about people that exist now. Yes, exactly. And it is saying to them, your history is a violent colonial history, and you're, which, you know, as far as we're aware, the Maori history isn't, yeah. and that, like, you are invaders, essentially, and that you are illegitimate. Yeah, and that if basically everyone here is as illegitimate as everyone else, so there's no point in questioning, like, all of that stuff, which yeah. is really, really helpful. And, like, there's nothing wrong with, like, a fun story for tourists that's not really founded in any provable facts, but it just is, is something that... I, th- I think anything that involves First Nations people and their rights and their position in the country, do, like, we have to give it so much more scrutiny because they are still so, like, staggeringly oppressed in most of the yeah. world and we can't we can't look away from that you've got to be careful i think around that sort of thing 
one of the stories that is told a lot, it's now told around Native Americans, um, and I heard it on a podcast recently, told as a fact about Native Americans, but it originated as a story about Australian Aboriginal peoples, is that when white settlers, when the British basically arrived in boats, that the Aboriginal people slash Native Americans had no concept of a boat and therefore were unable to see the boats. Like, they just couldn't see them because they had so little concept of it which is nonsensical Mm -hmm. like again the second you interrogate it and again when you follow it through it turns out to be from the journal of someone who was on captain cook's ship in 1770 who kind of rolled up uh Botany bay and then there's all these native people going about their lives and be the native people basically just looked up, looked at them, went, nothing to do with me, <laughs> and went back to their jobs, which seems fair enough. Somebody, I saw somebody on the internet describe it as a not-my-problem filter, um, yeah. which I think comes from Douglas Adams. <laughs> like It was made invisible by a not-my-problem filter. It's, a, um, it's an interesting thing because that is something that I think predominantly Western people have projected onto other cultures in a lot of different ways. Like There are, there are these, there used to be this linguistics theory that basically said that if you didn't have a word for something, then you couldn't understand it or see it. So yeah. they had, like, there are certain... You can conceptualise yeah, it. Yeah, so there so. are certain colours that they claimed for a while that some cultures couldn't see because they'd, they'd never had it naturally around them. They didn't have a word for it, so they couldn't process it. Or there are some uh, cultures in the world where they don't measure distance, so they don't have any words for distance, so therefore yeah. they cannot understand it as a concept. That theory has been, like, roundly debunked now, but it was taught for a while. And it's actually the basis of the short story that is behind the film Arrival, which, if you haven't seen it, is about a language that lets people see time. Yeah. It's a great yeah. movie and a great book and uh, book of short stories. But The short story is better. But it's based it, on yeah. a linguistic theory that is not true at all. <laughs> yeah. But it was believed uh. for a while. And it is part of that thing of, like, white Westerners looking at other cultures as if they are essentially like stupider than us which is yeah obviously bullshit and wrong and should be for every turn when i was studying at university i took a myth and history paper which was the paper that fell both under if you were studying history or if you were studying religion it's a paper on myth mm-hmm. and history and i was taught by a maori professor and i didn't hear that myth come up in that class okay so yeah <laughs> which is like it's probably not the kind, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's Because it's myth. not academically viable. It's at best a fanciful fairy tale and at worst an open attempt to discredit people in New Zealand. thing is, I don't think it's an, it's a good enough fairy tale to be even, like it's a bit of a rubbish fairy tale. There were some other people here, but you killed them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's a terrible fairy tale. Yeah, it's really. It's not even, like, no, it's not even got a prince at the end or a happily ever after. <laughs> I'm not. I'm uninterested unless a prince comes. <laughs> so Aragorn, maybe that's Aragorn. Yeah, but only anyway. when he's Strider, because when he becomes Aragorn, <laughs> King of Gondor, he's just really boring. I'll be honest. Uh, I hate Lord of the Rings. I hate <laughs> the books. I hate the films. I think they're all terrible, and the fact that everybody loves them is baffling to me. So I can can barely even remember who Aragorn is. See, I really he's not it. Sean Bean, and I always think he should have been Sean Bean because apparently Sean, if I remember correctly, Sean Bean dies really early. Yeah, that's at like, the end of the first one. Why would you take Sean Bean away from me? Because that's Sean Bean's role. <laughs> His role is to die and to die early. 
I mean, I guess, but also, yeah, that's the entirety of my opinions on Aragorn. <laughs> it's not Sean Bean. Probably I, I really been. liked the films, but honestly, I don't know if I liked them because I liked them or if I liked them because it was Stockholm Syndrome. Because by the time <laughs> they came out, they had been all that anyone in New Zealand was talking or thinking about for like five years. It was on, literally yeah. on the news every night forever what was happening with Lord of the Rings because it was such a big deal. If you give me like half a gin and tonic and any gap in a conversation, I will just chat you for ages about all the reasons why I think they're terrible. The fact that, no, I'm not going to start. I'm not going to start. <laughs> if I start, I maybe, won't stop. Maybe one day we'll do an episode on um, Tolkien and <laughs> history. And One day when we're like podcasting mega stars, we'll do a bonus episode. Oh, um, yeah. And it'll be just me going on and on and on. <laughs> which kind of almost brings us around to Oliver's one, which mm-hmm. he wanted to mention. Which is, I suppose it's not one that I'd ever really thought about, but I think it's because this is what I never interrogated at mm-hmm. all. And I had just kind of assumed, in the way that everybody does, that medieval armour was really, really heavy. It definitely that, looks heavy. <laughs> and that it's really hard to move in. And I've never really thought about it, because when you see an armour, if you go and visit a national trust stately home mm-hmm. then it kind of looks uncomfortable and difficult to move in and whenever you see it on film then it looks like everybody's creaking around and kind of really difficult to move in and you only ever see people running around in like chain mail rather than the sheet metal stuff and it kind of had never occurred to me and Oliver said that Laurence Olivier's Henry V shows people being like winched onto their horses with cranes because they couldn't move properly I've never seen that but it sounds ludicrously brilliant and he has said that this like this is something that always bothers him because he's into this kind of thing. That basically that there's two different types of armor. So you have armor for when you're going into battle, mm-hmm. which is quite light and reasonably not flexible, but kind of works nicely together and weighs it only weighs about twenty kilograms, which isn't that much. That's not that much at all. I can carry twenty kilograms probably not for very long. Um, <laughs> I'm weak as a kitten and quite small. I mean, it's also, it's not like you're carrying a 20 kilogram sack. It's like it's true, it's like it's spread like across. You're wearing 20 kilograms. So it's yeah. like spread and placed in ways that make it easier to carry. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, and it's, so that's, you know, reasonably light. And his comparison is, he's written, for comparison, a modern SAS soldier carries a pack weighing 45 kilograms, which is a lot. Like, that's. Yeah. And that is a pack on your much. back. That's not close. Yeah. They shouldn't do that. That's, no, that's terrible. It sounds hard. Um, yeah, so they could, like, leap about quite happily. And also they're presumably big, strong men who have spent their lives running around in armour and training for this shit. Yeah. So that's not too bad. And But the, like, armour that you see a lot more of is... Because obviously that armour gets all beaten up in crusades and stuff. Mm-hmm. The armour that you see is tournament armour, which is like show armor <laughs> for jousting tournaments. Right, when you're just going to sit in one place and someone's going to thrust a lance at your yeah. chest. Which is jousting is a lunatic sport. It's a fucking lunatic sport for <laughs> idiots is what it is. But this is what um, I thought of when Oliver mentioned this is because the only, when you say heavy armor, the thing I think of <laughs> is Knight's Tale. Yeah. With Heath Ledger where he, where that's, that's a plot point that he, you know, he makes friends with a, a woman blacksmith and she invents light <laughs> armor for the first time ever, and that that's what makes him better at jousting. And it's, um, I mean, it's, I love that film. It's so do I. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun, but not realistic. I can't remember the name of the woman who plays the French princess now, but she's the least convincing French princess, Shannon Sossaman. Yeah, Shannon Sossaman. 
That just came to me. Yeah. And she's really hot, but she was like, in, she was in like all the movies for a year and then she kind of disappeared. Yeah, I wonder what she's doing now. Yeah, anyway. Know. So, jousting, you're not going to do any fighting, really. You just like, you get put on your thing and then you hold your big stick. Yeah, and then you just run. And as then fast you as run as you each other. <laughs> and you try to hit them before they hit you. Yeah, or you try to hit them in a better place than they hit you, or you try, yeah, you try to just knock them off. The equivalent to jousting today would be like two men dressing up in full like gridiron gear and just charging at each other with the heads down like barreling forward that's what jousting yeah. is it's entirely stupid i mean i think that about boxing and i'm probably going to get people like right in now and be like oh, well the thing about boxing the boxing is really the important. thing about boxing is that um it should be bare knuckle <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do it do it properly is well no because bare knuckle boxing is way less dangerous than boxing with gloves that's true because you can't hit as hard exactly the thing is the gov- the gloves don't protect the head of the person you're hitting they only protect your hands so you hit yeah. harder because your hands aren't going to get hurt where in, in bare knuckle boxing you're trying to protect your hands so you don't hit as hard and there are less concussions and less brain injury so that is my stance on boxing it should be bare knuckle I'm willing to go along with that I mean I think it's stupid because I've absolutely no idea why you would want to spend your time hitting other people for fun but yeah. please don't write in and tell me why you would uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but, I mean, to me, jousting seems exactly the same. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a fucking great time and just ram each other really hard with sticks on a horse fast. Yeah, um, men, men are the things they come up with to entertain themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to assume someone, oh, someone's going to email and be like, oh, actually, I think you'll find it was super tactical. Um, <laughs> but this is exactly the same as when people tell me that Formula One is extremely tactical. I don't believe you and I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's just clearly preposterous yeah so when you're going to just be hit with a massive stick at high speed you need something that's much heavier yeah and you um, don't need to, and also, to move because moving is not the point yeah and also that's something you're going to have at your house unlike your battle armor which presumably rarely makes it back in yeah. if you've done battle properly your battle armor shouldn't be coming back in one piece i mean it's like that thing of once you if you have a bike helmet it's only good until it's been used so if you fall yeah. and hit your bike helmet then you have to get a new one because it's been structurally undermined <laughs> and it won't work yeah time. i feel like yeah once you've got a good couple of dents in your plate armor you probably don't want to be no yeah although i guess that's one of the things that blacksmiths do right is they fix all the dents and make it strong again yeah they make yeah i don't know everything i know about anything beyond that what i've learned from rex factor <laughs> comes from a night's tale <laughs> Reason and as we have just established, tail is really bad on armor and joust. <laughs> <laughs> the other one that Oliver wanted, that he was really torn between, so I'm going to do both because I quite like this one as well, is the uh, the image of Vikings with myths on their hel- with myths with horns on their <laughs> helmets. Such a myth, which is obviously completely stupid. Yeah. And this one, like I have actually thought about well, for more than half a second. And obviously they didn't have massive horns on their helmets because you can't go running into battle with a big horn on your helmet. So I want to immediately grab it. The most impractical um, bit of armour it's possible to have. But they do look very good on the stage when you're singing Wagner, I guess. They so. do look great. Apparently it comes from one particular costume designer doing one particular costume for Wagner's ring cycle. His name is Carl Emil Doppler. He's responsible for Doppler. a lot of people thinking a stupid thing. Yeah, it's quite good though, isn't it? <laughs> the thing I like about it is, as well as those helmets with their horns, they're not even secure in any way. Like they're basically just an upended bowl with horns attached. 
they're not secure they could just fall off you know (laughs) i mean and they would come off the first thing you would do if someone was coming at you with a big horned thing is grab the horn but i don't think they'd even have to do that because the horns would unbalance it as soon as you're running (laughs) it would just slide off there's literally no point in a helmet like that. No. Well, this buys into, like, again, why this one persists is that the image of the Viking is the berserker Viking just running wildly into yeah. battle. Yeah, and also them being, the like... blood um, of their yeah, really from their skulls and being just yes. impractically brutal. Being, like, <laughs> violent and dirty and having dreads in their hair because they don't want to wash, which is also not true. They had braids... And they were very, like, they were all buried with combs because they were apparently fastidious and... and Well, the thing with Vikings is that they are, when people say Viking, they think of, like, as if the Vikings all came in one go and it was, like, a five-year period where Vikings came and then they left. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, like, a good 200 years worth of, like, lots of different people from lots of different countries kind of coming and going and doing lots of different things and, like, hanging around in Ireland for two years and living in York for a really long time. Well, the one thing Uh, we do also know about... There was a Viking king called Sven Forkby. What a great name for a while. Isn't that a good name? (laughs) Sven Forkbeard. The one thing we do know about the Vikings, thanks to How to Train Your Dragon, is that all the parents had Scottish accents and all the children had American (laughs) accents. Yes, that is true. And also dragons. The dragony history of Scotland. Um, Yeah, the dragony Viking history of Scotland, but also America. Yeah, there are confused people in terms of accents. That's an interesting one as well, actually, the idea, like, because I'm so interested in the way that mainstream films, when they're doing shorthand for stuff and sitcoms and stuff, like how they, like the shorthand that they choose to represent people and like, why choose a Scottish accent for, why not have everybody be American or why not have your fictional dragon Viking people be Nordic in some fashion? Why aren't they Scandinavian? Why are they yeah. Scottish? And it's because like there's this vision of like it's kind of confused between Scottish Claymore wielding Robert the Bruce. <laughs> Yeah, of yeah, and and clansmen, like, which running is a out completely into imaginary and thing. Cold places wearing very little, like yeah, that sort of. Um, which is just which is a myth in and of itself, combined I've... with like the wild Viking berserker running into churches and setting them on fire. Yeah, um, um, I like it when stuff becomes accidentally accurate, though. There's, so there's a character in Brave who you can't, no one can understand. He speaks yeah. with this particular Scottish accent that is really hard to understand, uh, which is real a real accent from that actor's real... Uh, <laughs> like, his family comes from this part of Scotland that just has this very particular accent. My understanding of that is they didn't go out searching for an accent like that. They'd just written unintelligible <laughs> character, and then he was like, I'll just talk, do my lines like this, and it, um, and it works really well. That is good. I like that. Accidentally accurate. Yeah. <laughs> So I asked Twitter what their favourite myth was and the one that came back the most by far. And I I did this at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning because I'm really good at Twitter uh, (laughs) and asking things at appropriate times. But the one that came back like the most by far was the myth that Napoleon was really short, which has then turned into the whole idea of having a Napoleon complex, that short men have a Napoleon complex, so they have to conquer the world in order to... um, And this whole psychological explanation for why Napoleon wanted to conquer the whole of Europe because he was so tiny. Again, it's a kind of... a, a completely weird myth that comes from people... 
It comes from a combination of a misunderstanding of how the French measured stuff. So the French, because they were our French, had completely different units of measurement to anyone else in the world. And they had a thing called the French inch, which is completely different to any other kind of inch. Because the French do what the fuck they like. That's why they have that weird counting system. That's why they are who they are. And that's fine. That's why we like them. It's also um, a, a, like a, um, there's a myth that the reason we drive on the side of the road we do, the reason we drive on the left in England and in New Zealand and lots of countries is because m- armies used to march on the left. So their sword <laughs> arms were on the right. And there was a myth that Napoleon was left-handed. So he forced his entire <laughs> army to march on the right to go along with his being left-handed, which then is why Americans also drive on the right because of the (laughs) French involvement in the Revolutionary War, which apparently had to bring in all of their armies in line with the French ones, which is obviously, like, when I heard that, I was like, this is so cool. History is fascinating. And then when you think about it for five minutes, you're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. That doesn't make any sense. That's um, I when I learned French. So I started learning it when I was about eight or nine in year five, and they told us when we were learning how to count French, count French, count in French. Mm-hmm. That the reason that it suddenly goes completely bonkers at like sixty, well, at seventy, it like suddenly becomes soixante and then when you get to eighty, it's suddenly four times twenty, and mm-hmm. then ninety is four times twenty plus ten. <laughs> It's because Napoleon forgot what 70 was when he was counting his troops. Uh, <laughs> so he just made up, like, he just went 69, uh, 60, 10, 60. <laughs> and that everybody apparently just went along with that. Well, yeah, despite the fact that they've been counting for hundreds of years before that. <laughs> yeah, no, Napoleon. And like, it's just really funny when you think about it. And at the time, again, we were like nine years old going, yeah, yeah, God, that sounds like God, what an absolute bastard Napoleon was he? in order to cover up his mistake. He changed the whole language. <laughs> yeah. But I think I feel like a lot of this comes from, because obviously Napoleon wasn't very popular in England. And there was a good cottage industry in just taking the piss out of Napoleon mm-hmm. um, and the fact that in the French inch he measured at 5.5 foot 2 but in British inches or other like the inch that we have now mm-hmm. um, that's about 5.7 so it's pretty average yeah um, like not a giant but yeah but the fact of him being like this tiny little literally pocket sized kind of tin pot dictator who every time he makes a mistake just starts screaming and everybody has to agree with him yeah and he's left-handed so everybody has to be the same as him and and another one i don't know if anybody else grew up with this but this the phrase not tonight josephine was a phrase that i grew up with and i don't know why my mother used to say this quite as much my mom listens to this so maybe she'll tell me now but i distinctly remember her saying it and it comes from this kind of joke that Napoleon would never want to have sex with his wife. So every night she would try to have sex with him and he would always go, not tonight, Josephine. Because <laughs> he was also not very virile and that was a thing that they used to say about him, that he never wanted to bang his hot wife, Josephine. Sure, I mean, makes yeah. sense. Um, I have just discovered, by the way, the dialect is called Doric and it's from the northeast of Scotland. You go. There you go. There you um, go. Thank you, the internet. Yeah, thank you, the internet. I've never actually put together all of the weird shit that I was told about Napoleon as a child in one go. It's amazing. And there's actually a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of shit that gets said about Napoleon. I mean, I guess he was, like, a fascinating person, right? Because he tried to be emperor and succeeded and then failed and then tried again and kept saying, oh, don't kill me, I won't try to be emperor again, and then doing it, which is not rational. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's kind of great though. We were in um, Germany uh, last year and in the museum in Berlin they have his hat, like one of his Napoleon hats mm-hmm. and that was quite exciting. I was a bit like, ooh, it's a Napoleon hat, like he really wore it. Yeah, and there, there is something a bit kind of thrilling about Napoleon. Yeah, this, he's, a, he's a fascinating one. I don't, I, but it's is. like I can't put my finger on. There's only a story about when Napoleon escaped from exile, so after he was beaten the first time and then exiled to St. Helena, mm-hmm. and they kind of, they put like one guy there to look after him basically, and he won over his guard and got them to paint a ship so that it looked like a British ship. And then he escaped on that. And the guy that was supposed to be in charge of making sure that he didn't escape didn't notice for a couple of days. And then basically they thought that if he was going to go anywhere, he would go to Italy because he would never dare to go to France, obviously. So he kind of, he's kind of sailed off to Italy and just rocked up and was like, so I don't... Just as a question, not for any good reason. Just I don't suppose you've seen Napoleon at all, have you? <laughs> uh, just no reason, just checking that he... Yeah, just making sure that you'd not not seen him? No. <laughs> and they were like, what the fuck? How long has he been missing? Where is he? And they was like, mm, a few few weeks, not seen him around in a while. <laughs> and that's really how he was able to, one, by being massively charming and everybody loving him, two, just because the guy who was supposed to be looking after him was too embarrassed or too lackadaisical and didn't really raise the alarm for ages. <laughs> That is great. I'm a big fan of Napoleon. I like, um, I, I, lo- I, lo- I in general love historical stories that <laughs> remind you that, like, everyone's fucking making their lives up as they go along and no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. Like, I think we have a tendency to read things that happened in the past as if they were deliberate and planned, but most of the yes. time, no. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my big bugbears in history is this idea that everybody was, like, that there's a real tendency to try to give everybody a rational idea, like... A, a rational plan for what they were doing when actually everybody was just struggling making it up. Yeah. Like nobody had all of the information and everybody was just like, ah, fuck, what do we do? Everyone um, was just trying to live just like yeah. we are just trying to live. All of history is just whatever people were around going, ah, fuck, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and just trying to take it day by day. Yeah. Which is great. And then we go back and try to make up something rational in order to describe it. Like my, uh, what were they thinking? Came... What, were they, what, what was their plan here? <laughs> they didn't have one. They didn't have a plan. <laughs> they hadn't sat down and drawn up, you know, blueprints and... Yeah, like I just wrote a book about Agrippina the Younger, who married her, who married her uncle, and he <laughs> changed the law. So her uncle was the Emperor Claudius. He changed the law so that he could marry his younger brother's daughter. Yeah, and then and she married her dad's older brother, and then became Empress of Rome, which is cool. But so much that's been written about that is like desperately trying to work out some rational explanation for why that would happen. <laughs> like, what was he thinking? And what was she thinking? And desperately trying to work out some rational, like, they must have had this 10-point plan that they were going to, like, initiate. And obviously everybody casts her as, like, the scheming bitch who just wanted to, like, take her uncle for all he was worth. Mm-hmm. While he is either a doddering old man who is going to be taken for all he was worth, or he's actually a very pragmatic man who was knew exactly what he was doing and was securing something, blah, blah, blah. And it's just really funny. I'm like, I don't know, maybe they just wanted to buy. Probably didn't. 
they still it's really funny everybody has a different theory as to what the rational the, the rational thought behind that gross thing happening was probably yeah. there isn't one probably there isn't one i don't know i really like it when people try to find rational things or there is no rational thing yeah like it's the an, thing it, that always it's, comes up it's is, an interesting uh, tendency in the human mind to despite the fact that we know we are complete chaos <laughs> monsters we believe that other people do things cold-mindedly and deliberately it's i find it really interesting that tendency yeah um it happens all the time i mean and this is the thing it's kind of a dangerous one like it happens this is this is one of the things that i find and I, this is i know both your pet topic and the <laughs> the your own personal hell but it, this is what i think is behind a lot of red pill thinking the idea that women <laughs> are acting deliberately to hurt men when in fact they're just fucking trying to live <laughs> yeah it's really it's really interesting like it the, is the simultaneous tendency to credit other people with less intelligence than you have and less you know less of a rich experience of life as you have but also much more deliberate machinations going on all the time yeah super I mean, interesting I think it is not helped by the fact that all red people are complete dickheads that um, is very true <laughs> Like, it's nice to believe that other people are thinking rationally and doing what they're doing rationally because it's then nice. It gives you a kind of moral clarity and gives you a clear role in the narrative. Right. I am the good guy and that person is trying to hurt me. And for the same reason, all of these myths kind of persist because they give history a moral clarity and give the person who's telling the story a clear good guy role in it. Like, oh, we are... Look how stupid and small and rubbish Napoleon was, and that's why we were the winners because we were the best and we were the good guys, and he was a little tin like mm-hmm. despot. And we were the good guys because actually we came and saved New Zealand from these terrible Maori people who were yes. violent and had actually thrown out these previous was it Moriori? Moriori, yeah. It was a really fun word to say. Uh, <laughs> and it gives you a nice moral clarity of we are good, they are bad, or we are this role, they are that role, and this is... And it gives you a nice kind of simple narrative for history. And that's how they all really stick about, that they, they give you a nice, clear story. But also and... they are... they A lot of the time they are kind of these fantastical, fun things. So they're easy... They're clickbait. Right, so they yeah. they spread. Yeah, you hear totally you hear something like I don't know Napoleon forced all his armies to march on the right because he was left-handed, and it's fascinating. So you share it without thinking, and it takes yeah. a lot longer for the like the truth can't catch up with that because the truth is boring. <laughs> yeah, the truth takes an hour to go through and be like, well, yeah, actually. you have to like cite sources and do all this rational thinking, and it's much much more fun to just. Imagine nobody, the fallacy is true. And I say this as somebody who battles with being a well actually girl all the time. Um, <laughs> like it, nobody wants to be well actually guy. I mean, some people do. Some people are just the worst. But like that's basically what a lot of like in quotations proper history is like you have this like oh factoid history like oh did you know that fuck is actually initialism which means fornication under the consent of the king because you weren't allowed to have sex unless you had the consent of the king and then they would go around and like put the sign on and you go no well actually <laughs> that's not true the uh, punch yeah, that's actually, although talking of that, there is, <laughs> there's a really good blog by Kate Wiles, who is, I will put it in the show notes because it's amazing. She is a 
a, a linguist who does Anglo-Saxon stuff. And she is also at History Today and she's great. She has a book about the origins and the early uses of the word fuck. And most of the earliest in manuscripts, the earliest examples of it are in names. And they're amazing. They're all like Simon Fuckboater. Uh, <laughs> Roger Fuck by the Navel. <laughs> John LaFucker. That is brilliant. So yeah. I also heard, as well as fornication under the consent of the king for fuck, I heard for a time, probably when I was at high school, that shit stood for store high in transit. Oh, yeah. Which apparently was too. because, and it's, this is not true, just to, in case anyone's wondering, it's not true, <laughs> but the rationale behind it was that uh, when people were transporting manure on ships, there was some sort of physics reason that they had to be on the top shelf rather than the bottom um, so they would have <laughs> S-H-I-T stamped on the sides. Um, it's wrong. It's not true. I'm very sorry to disappoint you, but it's another, yeah. nice one. It's another fun one. See, but being able to say, oh, this is like, actually, it's an acronym. No, no, no. First, you have to say, actually, it's not an acronym. It's an initialism. And then you're automatically the worst person that ever lived. Yeah. And then you're like, no, it didn't really happen. And that actually came from. And you're like boring. You're just a killjoy. You are a killjoy. People just want fun facts. And that's fair enough. Like, unless you are like me, a historian, then the fun facts are the fun bit. Yeah. (laughs) But for um, most people, they just want a fun story to tell at parties that will make people listen to them because it's fun. I mean, what they should do is listen to me because I've got loads of true fun facts. And I won't normally tell you that the um, the false fun facts are untrue. I will, obviously. But <laughs> I do think that there is a kind of a vague obsession with facts in the kind of post-Enlightenment modern world. Like this idea of there being a fact and it is true. There was a really good article in History Today recently actually about, which is a really good magazine now, partly because of Kate Wiles, <laughs> about like where the concept of facts, like it took over from the idea of authority. Like we used to have, if somebody else says it, then they're an authority and mm-hmm. therefore that is all you really need. Like Which is, which be- is to be, in a lot, a lot of the time, all we really have. Like there is a lot that we most people don't have the expertise to be able to verify for themselves. So you trust... Yeah. uh, You trust an authority. Yeah. Yeah. But now we trust authorities for facts, basically. Right. But fact is a kind of quite new word, which is interesting. It's like only really a 17th century kind of thing. Yeah. And so myths tend to be shared as facts, like in horrible histories books, like they have that little rat that says fact next to them. And as if that means it is unimpeachable. Yeah, and like the complicated nature of what a fact is, is more difficult, especially with history, like, did it happen or did it not happen, is a more difficult question than it initially seems with a lot of stuff. And then why did it happen? And then just because it's written down, does that mean it really happened? Yeah, because all you really have in the end is we have this account that says this thing and this account yeah. this is this thing so this is what currently we think yeah maybe. basically but then they could be lying or we could just think they're lying or it could be a misinterpretation or it could be there's a gap in this text so we don't really know and like there's a lot more more new like the idea of what a historical fact is is kind of complicated but it does um, seem like it, particularly now in the clusterfuck that we live that it is important to, I guess, be aware of how to question facts. And yeah. So all so-called facts and news and things, and to ask questions like, who is benefiting from the story being told like this, and what is yes. what is 
Yeah. Because who is the in group in this story? I think is always it's like yeah. that's how I always question who is jokes. saying this and who are they saying it to and why. Yeah, and, yeah. who is supposed to be the hero of this yes. story? Because I um, read a thing a while ago which was about how humor works, and that sounds really boring. Um, <laughs> but it was very interesting because it was basically like in order for a joke to work, there has to be an in generally has to be an in group and an out group. And it was basically about why saying it's just a joke or it's just banter is part of the problem right. because you are immediately saying you if you get this joke and you laugh, you're part of the in-group and if you don't, then you're part of the out-group. Right. And therefore you are going to be punished essentially because everybody wants to be on the in-group. Yeah. Um, and humour is a way of reinforcing the in-group and saying we, the men or we the white people or we the you know the powerful group who are telling the joke Mm -hmm. like we the men who are telling the rape joke or we the white people who are telling the racist joke we are the in group Mm -hmm. and people who don't laugh because it's at their expense are in the out group and it's a way of reinforcing power dynamics really yeah Um, and these stories are the same yeah comedy has a a victim inherently there is a victim in a joke and it's about yeah like who who is this joke making a victim and what to what end yeah and this is the same thing like who if you are on the in group then you are less likely to question it because you are not going to feel anything to question yeah you're gonna nod and go oh really the maori came and threw out these peaceful farmer people but if you are a maori and you are hearing that story or if you're a native a member of a native american or a first peoples or an aboriginal and you hear the story that oh they were just so stupid that they had never thought of ships and they had never they so they couldn't even see the ship like or they were so violent they came and just just like wiped the all trace of these peaceful people off of the face of the earth then yeah you are part of the out group you're not supposed to be the hero of that story yeah Yeah. and i think that is part of the way that history in the end is really a story that we tell it's a series of stories that we tell and knit into a larger story and those stories always have some kind of purpose yeah and part of interrogating those stories and part of interrogating the way we tell those stories and why we tell them in the way that we do i think is really important yeah Um, and the myths endure really because they fit into the story that we want to tell about ourselves yeah they reinforce what we want to believe about ourselves and the world yeah i guess Exactly, that yeah. we are the good guys, really. Yeah. Um, but um, we're not, guys. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> we are often the villains. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah, basically. But every, nobody tells a story. Like, you never see people writing their autobiography in a way that says that they're the, they're the bad guy. They always There was always a terrible reason why they were actually a horrible alcoholic who beat their six wives. Yeah. Like, there was always some reason, and there's always... You know, there's like some reason why we did the things we did and actually we were good. Yeah. So that's historical myths. Do you have any... Okay, we'll do a clearinghouse. Have you any other historical myths that you want to challenge right now, Janina? Oh, <laughs> I did see one that I kind of liked. Oh, the life... Uh, uh, the average lifespan one where people look, look oh, back yeah, in time fun. and think, oh, in the Middle Ages, people only lived to 35, which is actually because the average life expectancy is thrown way off by infant mortality. Um, yeah. But the actually, chances of you living beyond five were not that high. Yeah, but, but if you, if make you it got past beyond five, five you're, pr- you're fine until for a normal period of time. 
See, I quite like that because my part of my master's thesis research was reading epitaphs, Roman mm-hmm. epitaphs, and I read 10,000 of them. And it, it's interesting the spikes in mortality you get, and you do get a lot of children, like huge amounts of children. Mm-hmm. And then women, you get this massive spike in uh, between about 20 and 25 when they're having children mm-hmm. and dying in childbirth. And then... It keeps like then it kind of plateaus until you get into your sixties. Men in their thirties, but they tend to die in war, and that's different. But I was particularly looking at women. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you get babies, twenty-five, pretty much fine until you're sixty. Yeah, it kind of, it did kind of suck because the chances of you living past five were fairly slim. But <laughs> yeah, you do wonder like having babies wasn't worth the risk at this point. <laughs> you have yeah. you might die, they might die. <laughs> Yeah, but then I was going to say very limited contraception, which there was. But as my old ancient history teacher told, used to tell me, and not me specifically, this is going to make it sound like she used to corner me and just be like, they did it up the bum. Oh, Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they yeah she used to say there are other entrances <laughs> yeah there are other ways to achieve gratification she wasn't just to be again clear my a level ancient history teacher did not corner me to talk about anal sex randomly she just used to <laughs> make it clear that, that was <laughs> it was in the lesson it was in the lesson there was a way to be a prostitute in the ancient world and not die in childbirth every mm-hmm. 20 minutes <laughs> yeah yeah um, I also like the thing about uh, Iron Maidens Iron Maiden. Excellent. Oh yeah, I didn't know that one. That one's another one from and it's Oliver. Like, it's one of those things that comes up a lot in different areas. Like it's the same with chastity belts. Yeah, um, nev- there's no evidence really that they were thing. ever actually used. Yeah. So the thing with Iron Maidens is that apparently the only examples we have are 18th century like curiosities for people with way too much money and weird interests. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. So what you you're saying, what I'm hearing when you say that, is that it's very likely they were just used for kinky sex. I mean, I, I absolutely know. Assume so. <laughs> I I don't know why you would make one if you if you weren't going to use it. But apparently, <laughs> in the 18th century, they had a lot of time on their hands. I'm yeah, not sure. <laughs> I think this is maybe what happens when you get an empire. You just you get a class who's so rich and yeah. so bored that they do weird shit like build an Iron Maiden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dare each other to get in at parties. All right. I'm going to do one more, which is that the Romans did not have special rooms that they went and were sick in when they had, when they had dinner parties. They did not go and be sick in a vomitory. <laughs> and then it's go a compelling back to eat more. picture though. And that, like the word vomitorium is so good. It is. And it is awkward that vomit ended up meaning being sick. But vomitoria just means exit. <laughs> it's what like when you're leaving some anywhere at all, <laughs> just means exit. And that's obviously how it ended up being related to being sick because everything is exiting, exiting your body. Yeah. But in the same, it's like a reverse meaning adding situation. Yeah. Like a backronym, but there's no good word for it as far as I know. <laughs> it just like when people were leaving the theater or leading leaving the stadium, they would just go out the vomitoria. It does though make sense in retrospect, even now knowing you may vomit in certain circumstances. Like when you see the doors open on a very full tube. 
it's like people <laughs> yes, are just exactly. getting vomited out um, yeah out or when you're waiting to board a Ryanair flight and then everybody comes flying out really yeah yeah that is what I it see. feels like and I assume that's what it was like. You know, you could get like 50,000 people inside a good sized stadium in Rome. There was like some terrible ones, incidents where they collapsed and killed like 20,000 people. Um, so people leaving probably did look quite vomity, I guess. But that's just what it means. It just means exit. There you go. That's my last one. That's my last well, actually. <laughs> actually. Is that what we're going to call this episode? The well, actually. The well, actually. <laughs> How many things can you well actually in an hour? <laughs> Those stories you thought were fun. Sells about it. They it sells. Uh, hopefully there were some fun bits instead. Took for a bit there. <laughs> what are we going to talk about next time? Next time, Janina, we are going to answer a good, really good question, actually, that I'm really looking forward to answering, um, which is from Alan on Twitter, who is a very old friend of mine. I've known him for years and years. And his question is, have there ever been any really horrible women of notoriety in history, or is it just men who are utter shits and subsequently cause the ruination of society? Um, and firstly, obviously patriarchy hurts men too, Alan. Yeah. Um, and secondly... We're going to find some really horrible women and see and talk about them for a bit. But until then, if you have a question for us, then you can email us on we're sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And or you we're can on Twitter. tweet us at sexyhistorypod. Yeah. Or I'm at nuclear teeth on Twitter. And I am um, at J9 and if. Yeah. And do we have any other ways of contacting us? You can just drop us an email and say hi if you want, if you even if you don't have questions, please don't send me emails about Tolkien. Also, um, or Formula it would be One. great if you could, if you've enjoyed this, if you could give us a review on iTunes. Yes, and tell your friends about us. Yeah. If you would just corner people in the street and tell them that you like us, that's good. There was. Um, but iTunes is probably more helpful than on the street. Yeah, because the more reviews we get, the more chance there is that we'll show up in people's recommended feeds, that sort of thing. It's a, um, and then it actually oh, makes a tangible difference to things like that it's not just and not then just for our egos although it is also for that <laughs> and then the more we appear in recommended feeds then the more likely we are to do a special episode where i just go on about talking for ages yeah um possibly a two-parter one on the books one on the film who knows <laughs> <laughs> no, well um, i mean having said that i do not want to ever read the books again so <laughs> you might be promising too much <laughs> that's true <laughs> I might be frozen. it might just be me talking and then Janina doesn't come that day <laughs> but yeah, yeah that's about it a pleasure as always Janina oh you too bye bye